HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This piece was brought to you by Roberta's, robertaspizza.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're exploring the intersection between food, agriculture, and competition. Learn how a chicken raising contest in the 1940s led to the poultry industry we have today. And they were going to run a contest and try and develop what they would call the chicken tomorrow. We'll also venture into the world of agricultural video games, where a new set of tractors is making a lot of fans happy. The biggest addition to 19 was the John Deere's. That's what everyone was hyped for. And we pay a visit to a group of Indian restaurants that aren't on the friendliest of terms. Usually they wait for my restaurant, but after long wait, they go to next door or downstairs. But this is how they do business. They completely copy whatever we do. Embrace your competitive spirit and be the first to listen to new Meet and 3 episodes by subscribing now. That's Meet plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to HR and Happy Hour. It's five o'clock somewhere, and somewhere is Bushwick. I'm Kat Johnson, the exe- uh, I almost said executive director. You basically are at this point. <laughs> I've been MIA. I'm the communications director, not the executive director. That's the executive director, Katie Mosman Wadler. Hey guys. I jumped right ahead. Like I was jumping. I know, but I haven't been on a happy hour in weeks and weeks and weeks because that's it's why I'm been... so excited that you're here. I'm excited to be here. Um, and we have a pretty exciting show today. Yes, we do. And I'm also supremely excited by this beautiful bottle of wine that has a harp on it and it's shaped like an olive oil bottle um but cat's chosen a really nice orange wine for us today which yes. i'm gonna read off the label cos rami it is from it's igp from italia italia um it just says prodotto in italia i don't see where it's from but it's really delicious 2017 rami and uh pretty excited about it should we do anyway, a little cheers I, we absolutely should it's toast. so nice to be back in the office, in the studio. Cheers. We have some very special friends joining us today. Hold on. Gotta lean to Gotta get reach. that twink. Gotta reach. Our studio engineer today is Amanda Wang, making us sound great. Hi, Amanda. Hello, hello. And we have one of our, I mean, more new to me because I've been away, but reasonably seasoned <laughs> now. Amazing intern, Pauline Munch. Hey, Pauline. Hello, hello. But Pauline, say your last name the German the way. The right way. The right way? Munch. 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 Like Munchen. But munch, I think munch works better. 
It works great for HRN. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's true. Pretty perfect. Yeah, and we have also a really, really special guest joining us. You may have heard his voice on our Newark episode of Meet and Three. Um, but Kat, do you want to give an introduction to our special guest today? Our special, extra special guest today is Frank Mintasana, the founding director of Ecospaces Education. Yes, um, but we're going to get more into it with Frank shortly, but um, I saw Frank last week at um, a, an event where he spoke on um, kind of the work that he's doing. And I was trying to explain to someone, I was introducing Frank and I said, he, do, he works with Ecospaces Eco Education and tried to explain what they do. I said, Frank, am I right? And he's like, no, not really, but it's okay. So <laughs> Frank, can you briefly describe Ecospaces Education and the work that you do? Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me. This is a pleasure. Um, and it's always nice having a glass of wine in hand. Um, <laughs> so Ecospaces really is um, kind of our version of a solution to uh, childhood food-related illnesses and the concept of bringing food-related education to students in schools and in communities to get them to start connecting to food in really healthy ways, right? So, so we do that in the school day, most especially, um, by aligning um, activities related to food, most especially gardening and cooking, um, with children and bringing that into the school day so it aligns with curriculum that they're already having to do and, and are being tested upon. Um, so, so that's that's the very short answer of what of what we do. It's very uh, it's a holistic approach, and um, so it has lots of different um, aspects to it. And we're gonna get more detailed with it that in a little bit. Um, excellent. First, we have a couple announcements and headlines. Um, one announcement we want to shout out is that next week, Jimmy Carboni is bringing back the brisket king of New York City. Um, it's returning for its eighth year on April 10th at the at Biba of Williamsburg, which is here in Brooklyn. Um, brisket king, if you're not familiar, brings together 20 chefs, pit masters with all-inclusive craft beer, hard cider, and spirits. Um, they will, yes, they will crown a brisket king at the end of it. There are celebrity judges, two of which will be our very own hosts, Zara Tangora and Bretton Scott of Life's a Banquet. Or Zara Tangora, Tangora. and Bretton Scott. If you haven't listened to Life's a Banquet yet, do yourself a favor. Go listen. It is a roller coaster of hilarity every single week. This week they had an old friend of mine, Robbie Nelson, on the show um, to talk about hangovers. And I think he's a good person to talk about it because he has given me several hangovers in my life. <laughs> uh, first at Booker and Dax, where he was a bartender. And later on at just house parties where he brings uh, bottled martinis. It's dangerous. Danger. But he, worked, he used to work for Plymouth. Uh, gin. So he was the master of martinis. I want to do a little trade with him with my uh, wine bottled margaritas and his <laughs> bottled martinis. Um, this is really good to segue into our headlines because our first headline is about batching cocktails. So let's go for it. On this week's episode of The Food Scene, drinks writer Maggie Hoffman talks about the art of batched cocktails just Yum. in time for spring. You can pick up a copy of Batch Cocktails, her most recent book, and learn how to mix up your own make-ahead pitcher. So get the book, listen to the podcast, get ready for batching cocktails this summer. 
And I'm going to add something that's actually not the headline I'm supposed to say right now because I'm going to get to that, but related to the events because batch cocktails and spring make me think about picnics, which make me think about Central Park, which makes me think about an event that I'm going to on Saturday morning that's open to anybody um, at 9.30 in the morning on Saturday. I know, hangovers, 9.30. It happens. It's real. But incredible (laughs) opportunity to forage in Central Park with wild man Steve Brill, who you may have heard on some of our programming here at HRN. Uh, it's going to be super fun. I will be there um, with bells on to like eat some stuff that we find in the park. And I would do this with no one other than wild man Steve Brill. <laughs> so um, for tickets, you can visit the New York Women's Culinary Alliance page. And uh, there are definitely still tickets available for members and non-members. I hope to see you there. Okay, so I'm um, going to make a shift. We're going to talk about what happened on Speaking Broadly this week. So... A couple weeks ago on uh, Life's a Banquet with Zara and Breton, we had a crossover episode featuring Dana Cowan, where they talked about coffee. And this week on Speaking Broadly, we did the other crossover where Zara came on Speaking Broadly with Dana um, to talk about how she recovered her sense of purpose after a horrific bus crash launched her off of a 40-foot cliff. This really happened. Um, After the accident, Zara decided to change her career not once but twice to become first a wildly successful chef and now a radio host on Life's a Banquet here on Heritage Radio Network. And lastly, we have a little teaser for you. This week's upcoming Meet and 3 episode is bringing you four stories about lost and found culinary treasures, from sourdough starters to shipwrecked beer. Meet travelers hunting the globe for endangered dishes and rescuing unique flavors from obscurity. I'm really excited about this one. And you know I'm really into yeast, so there might be a little like yeast appearance in this show. Yeast puns? Check it out. Maybe. 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 Um, yeah, it's a really, really they're, fun one. They're budding yeah. puns. <laughs> it's okay. Good one, Katie. You can kick me out. If you love puns, <laughs> listen to Modernist Breadcrumbs. Yes. If you need more yeast and bread puns in your life. Yes. Um, all right, cool. So we jumped around a lot, but every, <laughs> everything's so connected these days. I'm just so excited to be back. Yeah. That's I'm glad to have you back. Thank you. Um, all right. So back to our interview with Frank. Um, Frank, we got to visit... Phillips Academy, Phillips Charter Academy. Is that right? It's Phillips Academy Charter School. Phillips Academy Charter School. And one of the coolest things we got to see in addition to the dining room and the garden was a very huge picture on the wall of the one and only heroine of the world, Michelle Obama. Indeed. How did Michelle Obama come to visit Phillips? So clearly she was kind of in the thick of her Let's Move movement. Um, which uh, aligned perfectly with everything we were doing. Um, I also work and have for the past six years with Food Corps, which is an extension of AmeriCorps. And we had a Food Corps service member in our, you know, I have to go back. I think it was a matter of everything aligned, right? So we were doing work that she was advocating for, obviously. We were working with Food Corps um, very, pretty, very closely, in fact. Um, her alliance with Food Corps was really was really direct, and we had just had a visit from the Department of Agriculture, the secretary from the Department of Agriculture, and the USDA. So there were just a, kind of a lot of things that happened. So I don't really know how it happened. It was all it was like all secret vetting, like totally. And everyone takes credit for it, right? Oh yeah, of course. <laughs> like I, you, she wouldn't have been here if it wasn't for me. Totally. Um, but but the the bigger point is that I th- I think that 
like all of this, working together um, and collaborating really kind of brings a like a pretty clear message. And I think that we happen to like our stars were in the right place at that night. That's so yeah. cool. So um, there's the picture of her like holding the worm. Um, can you tell us about how that like came to be <laughs> sure. specifically that moment? Yeah, I mean, that is my absolute favorite picture of the day, which is why it's blown up. <laughs> you know, like, it's an eight, eight feet by, by 10 foot uh, blow up. Uh, so there is a little story behind that. So she is actually holding live worms because the, the students at the time were talking about composting and showing her um, she was on the rooftop garden. So they were showing her to plant and they were and she was painting garden signs and they were talking about vermicomposting and so my backstory which I thought was always fun is that they um her handlers basically put garden gloves throughout the garden I mean they were just like she is not going to touch dirt she's not going to touch anything so these are her worms and she just jumped in there with the kids and she picked up a worm with her bare very <laughs> manicured fingers um and and just kind of dispelled the whole belief that she needed to wear garden gloves but it was an amazing 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 day I just love that she's like so hashtag relatable Completely. In that moment. Um, I think she's such an icon of bravery because, yes. as you know, I am terrified of worms, <laughs> even though I love gardening. So um, I really am just like, wow, she is tough. <laughs> yeah, com completely. I already knew that, but just like as if I could admire her anymore. Totally. Um, yeah, I'm impressed. Yeah, it, 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 that, that was definitely out of the years I've been doing what I'm doing and even in the food world, that's definitely the highlight of my life i think <laughs> yeah i'd say well let's let's work backwards because i mean that's like a real pinnacle of like you know accomplishment to you and to everyone that works um with you but how did this all start how did you get involved in eco spaces education i mean how did you start it you know i ask my myself that question all the time <laughs> all the time I'm like so i well, talk, talk about too like what you were doing before that yeah, yeah yeah so i was completely entrenched in the food world i went from food in the ho hotel business to being an entrepreneur i owned a small business down in soho called once upon a tart for many many years um sadly so three owners later sadly just this past year after 26 years i think it closed down which in new york oh, i man. think is so that's a long yeah. run in New like York. We're going through a wave right now. Yeah. Oh, for sure. In, in the East Village, for sure. Like a lot of favorite places are just disappearing. Yeah, it's yeah. Really it's, hard. It is really hard. But you know, I, I I was actually speaking to the last owner and found out what the rent was compared to the under one thousand dollar rent I what? you know I had in in the <laughs> yeah. early nineteen nineties. Oh. Um, and it's you know have to sell a lot of tarts or something That's a lot of tarts. Yeah. <laughs> to, you know, to make, to make that hat, to make that happen. Um, so I segued from that into, I wrote a cookbook and photographed it based on, based on once upon a tart, which was super fun. Um, and then realized like, wow, there's a whole world out there where I don't have to cook every day <laughs> for hundreds <laughs> of people, but I could still be in food. So it kind of, it's kind of led me into food publishing. And that was kind of a nice thing. Cause after 10 years of doing, um, you know, being being with Once Upon a Tart, I had known a lot of people from Martha Stewart, Food and Wine, Gourmet, all those people. So it was kind of nice to be able to kind of segue somewhat easily, I would say, into being being a food stylist for a while. Um, and then I met this woman at a party, and after some time talking about food, et cetera, she said, "You have to meet my husband, who." Uh, 
is a is a head of a school in Newark, New Jersey. Um, so I live here in Brooklyn, but I thought, eh, why not? You know, it sounds good. I had been following Alice Waters for a very long time, and um, thought, wow, this is kind of an opportunity that could that could be interesting. So I went to see the school. Um, I walked into their lunch period where they were serving just bad food, you know, just bad school food. And um, and the good thing is that the, the 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 school leader, the administrator, knew it was bad. Like they knew they needed they needed some work, so they hired me as a consultant to bring in a a, a food program. So. With that, we brought in a made-from-scratch food program, which um, uh, which conti continues to to live to this day, which you guys saw a little bit of. Um, I think you even had a little taste. We of got to eat stuff. lunch. We can oh totally vouch for it. Yeah, right. For I school was lunch. so blown away. I, I want to. We're going to come back and talk more about school lunch because okay. I have yeah. a lot of things I want to cover with you. Yeah, but just to say, <laughs> Hot topic today. It's even. incredible now. You would not go in there and and think that there was you know, anything wrong with the lunch. Yeah, no, it was, it was, it was amazing. And I, you know, and I think that's, uh, you know, I think that's a, a big foundational piece to what we're doing. Probably the harder piece regarding change and, and how, to, where do we go with this? Um, but the other piece is, um, I realized very quickly, partly through following Alice Waters, but also realizing like I have a kid myself and I, and I've been around kids and realize you can't, you just can't say to a kid like eat this lettuce cause it's really good for your body. It's like, you know, even that notion that of chance. like spinach is good for you and it <laughs> makes you smarter. You're, you know, it doesn't really work. Right. So, so, um, so what I propose in this, in this conversation is that we look at it kind of more holistically. Mm -hmm. Like we're not just going to bring in a made from scratch lunch lunch program. We're going to connect kids to food, right? And we're going to do that and we're going to garden and we're going to cook. And, and in the beginning I was very, very hands-on and I was really passionate about it. I love teaching kids um, how to cook most especially. Um, and then families, like I was really kind of hot on that idea of getting kids and families to, 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 cook, to cook together. And then, I don't know, it just kept evolving into, into the next thing. Like, how do we teach them more? How do we make this more holistic? How do we, you know, these are urban kids. How do we bring in urban farming as opposed to just traditional, um, you know, traditional farming? So over the course of years, I really thought I was going to be out of there in eight months. I was a consultant. I was going to move on. And, you know, Nine years later, I, uh, you know, I kind of run this program that doesn't exist only in that school. We're in other schools. We produce conferences for educators to kind of get them to bring that, that information back. Um, we, I don't know how much you want to hear, <laughs> but uh, our newest initiative is something called the Mobile Food Lab, which brings um, food literacy education to schools via this mobile field trip. So it's an old school bus that we had converted to a, um, to a, a science. It, Inside, there's a science lab, there's a, there's a kitchen, and there's an art station. And they all relate to food. And we, um, we pretty much travel around with our food educators and bring these uh, field trips to school. So there's a lot going on right now. Yeah. So, Frank, we initially got connected through Marco Shima via Aero Farms. So right. our listeners know Aero Farms is an incredible ag uh, uh, Indoor, indoor vertical farm. farm. It's the world's largest indoor, indoor vertical, vertical farm. farm. Yeah, exactly. It's absolutely amazing. And um, it's sort of a similar model to hydroponics, which you might be familiar with, but involves um, sort of a misting technology. So it uses even less water. Exactly. Um, but tell us about how you got connected with Aero Farms and how that's factored into the program at Phillips. Yeah, that was, you know, another stars align. So, um, so the city of Newark 
although I've seen a lot of incredibly positive change in the past five years, I would say 10 years, the connectivity of, to food and health was somewhat not exist. I mean, it existed, of course, but, um, but Cory Booker actually had a, um, had a sustainability director working with him. And she had this idea that she would create a food policy council. Um, and, and in that conversation, which I was a part of, uh, there was a suggestion that everyone interested in food throughout the city come together to meet. And it was just basically just getting out to your network saying on this day, we're going to all meet at 10 o'clock and let's see where, let's see where it goes. Well, it was the most incredible, incredible turnout. I mean, we were, we couldn't fit in the room. It was packed. It took the, we, I think we were there for like maybe two and a half hours and we were going to have a conversation, but it took two and a half hours to introduce each and every one of us. Wow. So it, you know, so that's, you know, it's, it's amazing. Did you say right? like what year this approximately happened? So probably nine years ago, okay. maybe ten years ago, yeah. um, I had pretty much just been starting starting ecospaces. And um, anyway, so there were there were farmers there, there were urban farmers there, there were not so many education people, but um, but but really ran the gamut. And the uh, the uh, the inventor, if you will, um, Ed Harwood, who was still part of the Aero Forums team, uh, <clears throat> was there, and, and his team was there. And we connected, and I, I just happened to be at a point where, think as I, as I was saying earlier, I was thinking about how do we bring garden education to kids in urban settings when typically they don't have backyards and they don't have, um, you know, kind of access to, to dirt, basically. Um, so I was already in research mode looking at, as you said, aquaponics, hydroponics, aeroponics, et cetera. And I happened to meet them, and they exactly at that moment were looking for a uh, a Newark location to house their first uh, garden unit or farm unit. Um, coming down from Ithaca, New York, where um, Dr. Harwood uh, worked um, with Cornell, and I was like, you know what, this is perfect. I am looking for this, and <laughs> you're looking for me, and and a space. So we actually brought it in, and it we brought it into the cafeteria, and nine almost nine years later, it's still there growing produce, completely student run, which is the important part for us, right? So, yeah. so the idea of producing food is really important, but the fact that the kids are learning and it's connected to their science curriculum and so on is, is really important. So, um, and then Aeroforms, you know, as, as you know, is 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 the world's largest indoor vertical farm, <laughs> yeah. and it happens Crazy. to be in Newark. Right? And if so, you've ever had the Dream Greens from uh, Fresh Direct or Whole Foods or that you don't have to wash, um, they are wash. incredibly delicious. You might not have until recently maybe made the connection that Dream Greens equals Aero Farms, but right. now inside their packaging, you can see a photograph of their production facility, which is just mind blowing. But um, Frank, going back, so you have the prototype Aero Farms unit which is so cool isn't that cool it's yeah. rad can you just describe visually what it looks like yeah as i say and i've you know aeroforms probably well i think they'll be okay with this but i probably go out to home depot right now and build it uh -huh. except for a few things right like so so most especially that they have there's a patented cloth that um, allows the seeds to germinate and and the root systems to go into the cloth down obviously and and the and the plants go up into the into the into the light system and it's something that they we reuse over and over and over um, but it really is a basin of water with pvc piping and a water pump and some misting systems mm -hmm. in, in between so i don't mean to i don't mean to 
make it sound so simple. But the fact is, it's that that prototype compared to where they are right now. Yeah. Um, because they, in essence, are a technology company. I mean, there, there's mm-hmm. no question that they've brought technology into their into their farming, and and I think that's that's the incredible piece that's that um, has brought on the like the most the most current. Uh, version of of aero farms and for and it's me a pretty it's pretty big like rig it's it's like taller it, than me it's, it's huge yeah how like 10 feet long yeah it's or? like it's probably 12 feet long and we have only two stacks uh-huh. um so that's so it's bigger than every single kid in the school yeah. <laughs> okay, well, so. and when i was when i was calling marco shima because we did a piece on aero farms as well as um eco spaces for meet and three mm-hmm. and i was calling him just to fact check something and i i said like is it true that the AeroFarms prototype is in Phillips Charter Academy? And he was like, it's not a prototype. It's what it is. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's just two layers of what they have, what, you know, 10 layers of uh-huh. in their farm now. Right. right uh, exactly. That's really fascinating. I mean, you're using the exact same technology that they are using still today. Completely. And talk about like how much harvest you're getting from this one unit. Yeah, so I would say if you asked me that question a few years ago, I would I could give you actual numbers. Uh-huh. Um, <clears throat> but we took a step back and said, what what is what is the purpose of this? Are we trying to produce really high yields, or are we trying to teach? And we realized that we're trying to teach. So. Um, with that, like farming, um, and, and we do do traditional farming on the roof in that particular school. Um, with that comes all all the trials and tribulations of of farming. So, when the harvest doesn't really succeed, that's part of the learning process. Um, so we, to be perfectly honest, we've kind of stopped tracking how many pounds. Um, but we we absolutely between purchasing directly from Aero Farms, um, we definitely supplement the salad bar for. Uh, 460 kids a day and they go to the uh, you were there like yeah. they definitely go to the salad bar because they have their like family style food and then they are able to go to the salad bar yes and um can you tell us about the arugula salad dressing i can but as you know i can't tell you the secret recipe cause... i know but <laughs> but we're gonna uh, keep giving you wine and trying <laughs> yeah, exactly. you know i don't even know the recipe believe it or not. and you know and she's on my staff but, um uh, so 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 <laughs> One of the, so what happened in the very beginning? We were all so right now, we grow lots of different things, and they try different things, and they they try herbs and cilantro and basil. Um, but in the very beginning, we were just growing arugula, like just straight arugula, and we were testing water for pH levels to see how pH levels affected taste, whether it be nuttiness or bitterness, and so on. So we spent an enormous amount of time with an enormous amount of arugula crop, and we couldn't really kind of get through it. So um, one of our c- people on our culinary team, Ms. Vanessa, decided she would uh, she would try some recipe development. And um, so a little backtrack. So everything we do at that particular school is made from scratch cooking. So all of the vinaigrettes and dressings, et cetera, et cetera, are all made from scratch. So she has the f- kind of flexibility to, to kind of do whatever she wants. Um, so she just started kind of playing around and we did a lot of taste tests and it kind of became kind of a hit with the kids. Um, partly because, and, and this is, and this is 
the idea, right? You can when a kid grows arugula, they're going to eat arugula, and when they grow it, they're going to make a vinaigrette and and try it on their, you know. So so it's all kind of that's the holistic piece. That's the the piece that just works um, kind of very simultaneously. Um, so anyway, so that arugula dressing has been on the salad bar for a very long time at this point. I just thought it was so cool that the arugula was like itself the dressing. I just thought that was like yeah. a brilliant idea. Yeah. It's yeah. very meta. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <Sorry>. Totally. <laughs> Whoa. So the thing that blew my mind when we walked into lunch, we were there, there were, it, how old were the kids? Like eight year olds? So in that particular school, actually all of our schools are the same. So from pre-K, which is, which is four year old up to eighth graders, which mm-hmm. is somewhere around 13. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lovely age. Uh, yeah, they, they only get lovelier. Yeah. Um, but uh, and all the all the lunch periods function more or less the same. The one that we walked in on, I mean, just like imagine yourself. You walk up to any school, you walk in during like eight year old lunchtime. What does that look and sound like? I mean, you just brace yourself, right? You're like you're like there's gonna be food flying around. Everyone's gonna be yelling and screaming and running around, and like the food's gonna be like total crap. And um, what we actually walked into was like a beautiful, calming, orderly space with like not the long tables with the seats that are like fixed in one place that you imagine, but like round tables with settings and every kid has a job at every table and they set the table services family style. They're all really, really focused on what they're doing and they're focused on the food and they serve each other the food and they all eat the food and the food is made out of actual food. And it just was incredibly transporting and not what you think of when you're like, I'm walking into, you know, New Jersey school lunch. Right. So um, sort of at what point... Did you feel like it was possible to change, like, not only the food of lunch, but the entire culture mm. around kids eating lunch? Yeah, I mean, I think that was my goal from day one. So I set the bar really high. And um, the, the the CEO of Philips, uh, Miguel Brito, was very down with this idea, you know. So and, and it's been amazing because he is an educator and comes from education and so has really kind of let me fly um, with with ideas. So setting the bar going, this is how we want to do it. And and obviously I didn't make it up, right? Like the, the round table comes from whatever boarding school or a kibbutz or or you know summer camp or any of those kind of things but 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 the culture that it creates was really important and really important to me and having had come from a food background and and cooking for years um i also thought it was important to kind of elevate the whole notion of like who who does cook the food? We, we want professionals to do this because they actually know how to do it and they know how to do it within a budget and they know how to make it tasty because we need to make it tasty if we want kids to eat it. Um, so it was just it was just combination of, of uh, wanting professionals to cook real food that was tasty um, and having having really high expectations of of what we could do and the students and and surely as you as you saw like that's no joke they were you know they go to the salad bar they pay attention to what they're doing they set the tables with forks and plates and they serve themselves and mm-hmm. um, so it's yeah it's it I, I think your reaction was is very much a, a similar 
reaction to most everyone who comes in there because you are expecting expecting to have to duck because something's going to be some piece of fluid's going to be flying. Yeah, you're like, let's walk into the cafeteria. I'm like, oh, great. (laughs) (laughs) We got raincoats or something. (laughs) Because what I noticed is that they were all so engaged, like Katie was saying, in the process of of eating lunch and serving each other. And so, you know, with like with kids of any age, it's like if minds are wandering, that's when like chaos can ensue. And so it was like, not only was there like the process of things happening, but then there was also the tasting that was going on. Can you talk about the tasting? Yeah, sure. Um, So obviously like the fact is we can teach kids how to garden and they can connect and they could grow arugula and eat arugula dressing. But there's still this in, this idea of introducing them to new foods that they've never heard of before. Um, and how do we do that? We can't if we just we notice like tofu is such a good example. I'm, I'm a huge tofu lover. So um, we used to put tofu on the menu without without kind of the backup plan of how do we get kids to eat tofu. Um, so what we started doing was we started forecasting what we were going to menu in the coming month and introducing them to the ingredient, whether it would be raw or, or cooked in a, you know, in a, in a specific way to start the conversation about that, about that ingredient and to make it kind of fun. So, so we do a tasting and then they all kind of vote um, and they only get three choices. They could either like it, love it, or tried it. So there's no disgusting or hated <laughs> it or any of those options. Um, they could think that in their head, but um, we actually, we try to empower them with vocabulary so they can, they can make decisions and then kind of have opinions about it that are positive opinions. Mm-hmm. You know? Like you could say, oh, I don't like it because it's too soft or because it's too salty or because it's too sour because then we know what to do with that information right uh-huh. we can we could adapt or we can talk about it we can further that conversation um so what we started doing is doing tasting so they're introduced to the ingredient before it actually showed up on the menu and we noticed that it just increased their likelihood of trying it and liking it or even loving mm. it and you know in in many cases were you there on chicken day it was sweet potato they were tasting sweet potato but oh, we, yeah. they, they, oh, they oh. had uh, like chicken drumsticks okay. so you were ha- i mean t- you know full yeah. disclosure yeah Chicken makes everyone happy. Like when chicken's on the yeah. menu, there's, we I call happy. it restaurant hum, right? <laughs> yeah. Like the, the dining room kind of hums. There are definitely days where it's, I mean, they're not throwing food, but there are definitely days that are a little more challenging where they're a little less, less focused. You know, when I talk about this, I, I, I really always want to be real about this, yeah, right? Sure. Like it is, it is a continued, uh, you know, uphill, uphill battle, if you will, to, to um, get kids to eat everything you want them to eat. Mm-hmm. So that's a good place to kind of take a break, I think, because when I come back, I want to get more into nitty gritty of of like school lunches, Mm because you mentioned one thing about milk requirements that I think is very interesting with school lunches. So Mm. when we come back, I want to ask you about uh, what are the real roadblocks that Mm -hmm. exist in building a school lunch program like this and like advice that you would have of of then creative ways to get around the roadblocks. So we'll come back. We're going to refill our wine glasses. Yes, we are. I do just on the chicken thing, though, I do want to say. Um, that doesn't mean chicken nuggets or chicken fingers. It's chicken, it was real chicken on the with bone. Bones. It was like chicken thighs on bones and chicken drumsticks on bones. Yes. Which is like so cool. And they could all totally deal with it. And I frankly know so many adults who cannot like eat meat. <laughs> so anyway, just a little visual to leave you with. Yes. About yes. those chicken bones. We'll be right back. Yes.
My name is Brandon Boy, co-owner of Roberta's, a super duper awesome place. Roberta's is a very, 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 very proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. We're also super awesome. Thank you, Heritage. Are you enjoying our podcast? Heritage Radio Network has lots more. I'm Ethan Frisch. And I'm Jenny Dorsey. And together we host Why Food, a podcast about innovators, career changers, and entrepreneurs who are changing the face of food. How did these folks decide to hit the brakes, start over, and become inspiring chefs, entrepreneurs, farmers, and activists they are today? Browse episodes of Why Food wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. All right, welcome back to HR and Happy Hour. We're here with Frank Mintasana from Ecospaces Education. Uh, when we left just a moment ago, we were talking about um, challenges that you have to kind of overcome when you're trying to reimagine and reinvent the school lunch program. One of the things that is kind of commonplace everywhere, it's, it's a requirement, is that kids have to be given the option of milk. At their lunch because what bigger challenge is there than the u.s government combined <laughs> with the dairy lobby Woo! um so on that note i mean first of all talk about how you go about making sure that that requirement is fulfilled at phillips okay i'm going to be as diplomatic about this uh, as of course possible right because it is there are some challenges and um and some are real challenges right so so at phillips um it's interesting because in the beginning we kind of decided we were not going to be part of the national school lunch program, which is the reimbursable meal program, because we wanted to kind of figure out how to do it our way and not not have parameters that someone else was dictating. Um, so we uh, so we started this made from scratch lunch program. And and as I alluded to before, this idea for me of sitting at a table around food is very powerful. I probably don't need to convince you guys, right? <laughs> like the idea of 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 of, the, of community around table and that power of of community around food is really important. So inherent in the original design was to use round tables, to have eight kids sit at a table and each kid have a responsibility to that table and mix up the grades, right? Like so so typically. <clears throat> you know, kids don't get to know each other outside of their own grades. And what better way to do that, if you're going to do it at all, is to kind of build friendships around food. So by original design, we, we decided that round table, that round table model was really important and that each kid had a responsibility to that table. So setting the table, getting the water out, serving the food, actually serving the food to each other and then cleaning up and composting and all those, all those kind of things. So that was, that was kind of by design. Well, as you can imagine, that doesn't really work in typical cafeterias. So, so one of our biggest challenges was going to the USDA and the Department of Ag, who, who basically run the, uh, the school lunch program, um, and saying, we have a different model that you might not be super familiar with in our, you know, in our space of education. But we've gotten it to work because we're educators and we taught kids how to do this. And it actually really works. Um, so as we know, a traditional cafeteria line, you stand there with your tray, you get to the end of the cashier who rings you up and figures out if you get a free lunch or a reduced lunch or a full pay lunch. And that we just we just kind of said, we're not doing that. We're that's not our that's not the way we're doing that, because we believe so strongly in this idea of family style 
family style meals. So it took a it took some time. It took a couple of years actually for them to um, kind of come around and and say, hey, what what's going on? Like, what do you actually do? Um, let's let's look at this. So the other thing that was happening kind of simultaneously is that there was a whole farm to school or farm, farm to cafeteria movement that was happening. And so, so just to, to, to tell you another challenge is 10 years ago, I could not get a farmer to deliver farm fresh food to a school. And I would say back then or maybe 15 years ago, it was hard for even restaurants to do that. Right. So um, so that's all changed a lot. So this was all happening kind of simultaneously, where we were talking about getting real food to to cafeterias. So, so the conversation was happening, and people were starting to listen. So again, that idea that that that, that there was alignment with with kind of trends and what was going on, and people realizing that wow, if we if we support farmers through like food in schools, we just gave them an entire market that that really supports their lifestyle and their livelihood and, and so on. So um, so there was a lot of so there, there was a lot of that going on. So in the beginning, the, the challenge of not being able to get local produce was very, very, very challenging. Um, and it was we could hardly get anything. Um, and that's changed a lot. We work with, you know, common market and zone seven to bring, you know, to bring fresh food from local farms to, you know, to our program. So they started listening to us. So back to the <laughs> back to the lunch program. So they started listening to us, and they actually came in, and they're like, "Wow, you actually could do this." And, and it's funny that you you uh, you clarified that the kids weren't eating chicken nuggets; they were eating <laughs> real chicken. Because I re remember when we got our first. So it wasn't an audit, but it was it was kind of what they call a pre audit. So they come in and make sure you're doing everything according to their to their standards. And I remember the the lead inspector speaking to her assistant, I guess at the time, and said they're eating real chicken. And I kind of looked and I was like, <laughs> what a word. I was like, what do you, like, what do you mean? And, and it took me, it literally took me five seconds to go like, oh, they actually are not used to kids eating chicken off a bone. And they were amazed that kids were sitting there picking up the thighs of the drumsticks with their hands and eating it and, you know, leaving the bone. So anyway, I think we've come a long way and they, um, they allowed this all to happen, and and you know there were there were definitely some things we had to do. We had to ensure, and we still have to ensure that in these schools where we do family st family style, that the kids are giving giving themselves when they're serving themselves the right portions, the amount of 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 greens, <coughs> reds, blues, all all of those colors that are necessary for a full plate. Um, so yes, the dairy industry. You want to go there? Let's yes. do it. If you want to go there, <laughs> yes, we do. I want to. I'm going to briefly talk about it, but but I'm not going to get too harsh. I, so so the fact is, so there's there's without getting into too 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 many details, there's you know within the national school lunch program, there's like this idea of offer versus serve, and it's it's based on the five components of back when I was younger, the the my pyramid. Now it's my or the pyramid. My now plate. it's my plate. Yeah. Um, so the my plate. I mean I mean I'm relatively happy with my plate. Right. It's like lots of grains there's vegetables the protein the animal proteins or the protein in general is not as big um but that milk is still there all these years later and the fact is like we don't need milk like once we stop breastfeeding we to, you know, we could have a conversation about that right? right but the fact is they want kids to drink milk and in doing so they ask us to support that initiative with offering two types of milk well 
like how there aren't uh, are there really two types of milk? <laughs> like goat <laughs> and cow. Right, right. I mean, we could probably. That's Katie, probably, I'll give you a yeah. hint. They're not asking them to serve goat milk. No. So in fact, I was like, what kind of two types of milk do you want us to serve? And they're like, well, chocolate or strawberry. Ugh. Huh. You know, that's jo- only one you know. cut. That's sugar or sugar. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> you know, so my jaw drops. I'm like, okay, I think we could probably get away with this. What if we offered two percent and one percent? Mm. Bing, you know, ding, ding, ding. We got it. And so we don't offer strawberry or chocolate milk. But the idea of that, of course, is kids will consume more milk if we offer them chocolate milk. If we um, offer them sugar, kids will consume sugar. Sugar, exactly. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So. Um, yeah, so I don't, you know, I don't know. I mean, we, we know, like, the, the sodium and whole grain just got rolled back, right, yeah, today. Yeah. Uh, you know, oh. so, oh, wow. you know, I don't know. what what's what. So, so we have to just keep plowing ahead and saying we know, we kind of know what's right, and water's really good. Well, is that, like, super concerning? Because, I mean, a lot of this work that you did happen during, um, you know, under the Obama administration when Michelle Obama took this on as, like, her mission totally. uh, as the first lady, and obviously now you do not have the same secretary of agriculture. Like things are very different. Are you seeing that having an effect, um, on eco spaces or on school lunch programs in a way that like you're worried or concerned? Yes and no. So I, so I'm concerned because I watched Michelle Obama work really, really hard for, I mean, we all watched her, right? Like for six years, I would say she worked her tail off to, to, to get, to get Let's Move going. And, and there were lots of plan, plans and Sam Cass did an amazing job supporting and, you know, so on and so on. And there was a lot of alignment. Even corporations were starting to kind of listen and go, oh, we actually maybe have a sense of like social obligation to, to reducing our, you know, our, our sugar and, and sugary drinks or, you know, or marketing different things like bottled waters or things like that. And, and so we've seen that. Um, but we also saw by probably what, year seven or eight, that she kind of started segueing towards, you know, issues around girls, mm-hmm. because quite frankly, she was getting pushback from day one. Mm-hmm. And that some of that pushback was against big government. Like, don't tell me how to feed my kid. Don't tell me my kid needs to eat whole grains because, you know, you're not the boss of me. You don't know? ban <laughs> my like, 7-Eleven drink. Yeah. You know, so um, so we've seen, you know, so we have seen pushback. Um, so I so this is what I always talk about when, when I talk about our mission around eco spaces is that the piece around school lunch, I'm happy to see a needle move. Right. Like I need I, I want to see I want to see policy because it really only can work if policy changes, right? And systemic changes. Um, so I want to see a needle move because I personally can't change that. And my program probably can't change it. Um, and when the first lady can't change it, I, you know, I don't know what else to do other than just plowing ahead and going, well, we're, we're going to do it. We're going to do it this way for as long as we can, we can do it. Um, but the other piece of, of our program is, is independent of any, you know, any big business or, or government policy and so on, which is we can get kids to garden in schools. We can get kids to cook in schools, urban farming. We can send kids to field trips. We, we have a program where we send kids to, to a farm in Vermont for two weeks. We can continue to do, do all those things. Um, and, and when we do them with, when we do them with kids, they're eventually going to be able to make these decisions for themselves. And that's part of this the whole system of empowerment, like empowering them to be able to make good choices for themselves. Um, and then we also work with educators and Food Corps is a great example is, you know, 
every one of my food core service members who's gone out into the world has stayed in this space and they are going to they're eventually going to become the policy makers makers and the decision makers you know i have my original food core service member um is in portland oregon and she opened a a, a garden-based preschool right so, oh, so wow. you know that's amazing i have two people in snap in the snap ed program i have someone who works for common market selling farm fresh um produce to uh you know in a, in a non-profit setting to to schools and restaurants and so on so so we're putting out potential leaders or they're already leading. They're already in, you know, in that space. So there's a lot going on. And then, you know, just getting to I had an incredible meeting um, two weeks ago with 15 people from the New York Board of Ed. And this is where it needs to happen. Like I, I all I can do is say we can do this, but they need to be the decision makers. And next week, I'm excited. I'm actually having breakfast with the Brooklyn Borough President. Oh, awesome. Um, so I don't know if you know his story, right? His, yeah. You know, his, he, right? So, Eric Adams had yeah. an incredible self-transformation by changing his diet. Totally, totally. That's going to be awesome. Um, so I'm having breakfast, um, I think, at like this local diner somewhere, which is going to be kind of fun and very New York. Um, You'll have to, to tell us what he eats at breakfast. I, <laughs> at diner. Okay, I'll, uh, I'll document it. Um, so, the, you know, so... so those like we'll continue to do our work on the ground with kids and with teachers and with families. Um, but we also need to continue those conversations with policymakers and borough presidents and board mm-hmm. of eds and those kind of things. Yes. Um, well, Frank, we are coming down to the wire on subjecting you to our round of trivia. But very quickly, before we jump into that, um, how can our listeners support Ecospaces Education? Oh, that's <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, there's always financial support. There's a there's a donate button on Ecospaces Education um, website. So that's surely one thing. I think continuing this conversation as much as possible, following us on Instagram and Facebook, we you know, we post really often um, just to kind of tell tell people what we're doing. Um, We are we are not this year, but we have we in 2020 will be um, we'll be producing another one of our growing healthy communities conferences. Um, that we've done twice already. And, um, and they're really for anyone. I mean, the focus is educators and school administrators um, who are kind of those decision makers or who are on the, you know, kind of on the, on the line with, with students. Um, but that's clearly open to people. So you I know, hope you'll keep us posted that. on that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And what's the website? And the website is ecospacesed.org. Go check it out. Thanks for asking. Read all about it. Um, click all the social media handles and follow all of them. Thank you. One-stop shop. Uh, okay, so we're going to do trivia now. Okay, you know I don't like trivia, and I'm really bad at it, right? We're no pressure. Do no pressure. But we're here to support. Yes. Okay, good. Uh, so we decided we would... Uh, Pauline has put together our trivia for today, and it's inspired by the Once Upon a Tart of your past. Ah, okay. So we decided to ask you about a truly New York trend, hybrid. Hybrids in bakeries, mm-hmm. a la the Cronut. Uh-huh. <laughs> and this uh, trivia is also uh, coming from Spoon U. Is that right, guys? Yeah. So Spoon there, U. there was this. Ar- there, there's an article which, if you've read it, Frank, you'll have an advantage. Oh yes. Um, okay. On Spoon University about uh, hybrid pastries. Okay. So uh, we just want to shout out and thank Alex O'Connell for this inspiration. <laughs> so good. Okay. So the way this is going to work is I'm going to tell you the name of the hybrid, and you have to guess what the hybrid is made of. Okay. The mashup. Mm-hmm. All right. So the first one. Is called a doskit. 
a doskit. So it's a biscuit and a donut. That's right. All right. Nice. <laughs> and that, well, okay. So moving on to the next one is called the Mallow Mac. The Mallow Mac. So, um, Mallow Mac. Can I get a clue? Wait, Mallow Mac. Is it a marshmallow? Mm-hmm. That's right. Mm-hmm. I'll give you a hint. I guessed this one would be a marshmallow and Big Mac, which was not right. I, 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 that was my first inclination, but I refuse to say that. <laughs> Think of pastries. A, a macaroon. Or, there you go. Correct. I want one of those. Sounds good, right? I think it's a, uh, we, we were talking about this earlier in the office. I think it's a marshmallow macaron. Macaron. Oh, macaron. Yes. Yes. <laughs> oh, and I should say that that one is from Dana's Bakery Mac Bar in New York City. And the doskit was from In Grain Restaurant in Chicago. Ooh. In case anyone wants to track these down. In case okay. you cannot live another day without a <laughs> doskit. I can't. Okay. <laughs> I'm out of here. Uh, next one is called a scruffin. A scruffin. So. This is Katie's favorite. <laughs> um, Shudder. So it's not an app. Um, <laughs> um, so it's a muffin and a, a I'll give you a hint. The R is misleading and misplaced. It's a superfluous R. Mm-hmm. It should really be called a scuffin. Yeah, it should. A, it's a scone and a muffin. That's right. Together. You're killing it. Which sounds honestly just like a really dry, heavy muffin. Yeah, exa- exactly. Although I, we used to have people, I mean, back in the day, people were like, can you just make your muffin tops? Uh, which, which exists now. That does but, exist but now. But 26 years ago, oh, it was a novel idea. So there was a long-standing demand, and someone finally decided to fulfill it. It's good to know the muffin top is occasionally in demand. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, next one is called a bruffin. A bruffin. So is it a burrito and a muffin (laughs) (laughs) you're halfway there it's a muffin for bros (laughs) yep uh it's a savory one and uh the the first part of the word refers to a type of sweet bread oh i remember it's a brioche and a muffin that's right and guess who serves it the Bruffin Cafe. Of course they do. <laughs> Get me out of here. Here in New York City, so go check it out. They have different flavors. <laughs> they have different flavors. Oh. Wow. Oh, yum. It sounds kind of good. Tomato I know, it Bruffin really does good, actually, actually sound delicious with a little like Gruyere and an egg in there. Right? Mm. Seriously. Okay, so oh, this, last, this last question, um, we're gonna, I'm going to tell you the name of four hybrids, and you have to figure out which of these four is not real. Okay. We have... The Duffin, the Townie, the Pookie, and the Churon. I hope it's the Pookie. The Pookie is real. It's real. And it is a pie and a cookie together. Oh. <laughs> you, you, your voice sounds happy, <laughs> oh. but your face doesn't oh. happy. Because, <laughs> you know, you try to get these flavor ideas in, yeah. in, like, in your head. You're like, You're oh, like yeah, I'm kind of taking that. Like no, that. No. Yeah, exactly. Um, what was the first one? The Duffin. Duffin, Townie. Pookie Churon. Okay, I'm gonna guess the the townie. That's also real. <laughs> oh man. Okay, you have so to tell me now. the Duffin is a donut muffin mashup. Okay. The townie is an American brownie with a European tart, and then the Pookie is a pie and cookie. The Churon is a uh, churros and macarons, but it is not real, and it is from the TV show Broad City. 
Oh, it'll happen tomorrow, right? Somewhere out there in bakery land. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it might have not, not real been real for now. Now it's real. Right. So probably real. Exactly. After it appears. Search show. the dark web. I'm yeah. sure it's out there. Maya, Broad City ended last week and it was so sad. Mm, I'm not ready yet. I love that show. Um, Pauline, thanks for putting our trivia together. Good work, everyone. That was, that was a tough one. Thanks, Paul. Uh, I know, I was a little stunned. Frank, it is our pleasure to inform you that you have won trivia. Yay! Congratulations. Yay! I feel good. Thanks for playing. And thanks. thanks, everyone, for listening to HR and Happy Hour. It's been a wonderful Thursday. Frank, we'll come back anytime. Next week. I would yeah, love to. You're yeah. welcome here, always. Lots of food stories. Yeah. So Please send up you your so, updates. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Uh, thanks, Amanda, our engineer. Thanks, Pauline. Thanks to Katie. Thanks, Kat. All right, that's our show. We'll see you next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. And connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.